As promised, the top of the program, we're going to now go to the man who started this all. I got a phone call back in the year 2000 from our good friend Steve Alexander. By the way, welcome back to the show, Steve. Well, thank you, Doctor. It's good to be here. I'm reminding our listeners that you called 10 years ago and said, I'm sick of being a lawyer. Let's do a radio show. You be the doctor. I be the lawyer. And that's how we were off to the races. Right. Although I, I would say it would have been nice to get an invitation you know, a little sooner than 11 years later to come back. But it is <laughs> You have a here. standing invitation, my friend. I know. In fact, without further ado, I think there's no better way to start this segment than to do your own very clip from about 2004. When a Florida lawyer smashed his pickup truck through the entrance of his own gated community, lawyer Mac Greco Jr. said he was, quote, sick and tired, unquote, of having to identify himself at the gates to preserve his neighbor's, quote, prestige and property values, unquote. An expert said the incident was America's first case of gate rage. Are you now? What are you looking for from me? You want a legal opinion, or do you want my just general opinion? Well, how about both? Well, first of all, uh, there's no legal issue that you've presented. I do think that he's going to be prosecuted for smashing the gate. Okay, so malicious mischief of some type. Here's what I think. Uh-huh. Uh, first of all, this is an example of a lawyer who happens to be a great person. This man. <laughs> deserves a medal for smashing the gate for smashing the gate because you know what when people buy into gated communities they have no idea that they are going to be associating with a load of retired people who are like gestapo busybodies busybodies that have uh-huh. nothing to do but run around and tell you that your hose is in front of their side fence so this man first of all deserves a medal but by the way are you, are you is this the voice of experience oh totally <laughs> totally I won't mention the particular subdivision, but i got to tell you. I mean, uh-huh. I'm the only guy known to man uh-huh. that has ever been cited by a homeowners association for failing to wash his garage door. By the way, Steve, what was the penalty for not washing your garage door? Well, they threatened to throw me out of the subdivision to get a, a lien against my wife and children and all kinds of mean and nasty things. So I washed it. Good, good. By the way, you can see with a with a fine clip we just played why you need to come back on the show more often. Damn it! Well, yeah, there are people storming these gates all over all over the United States. <laughs> We've got a lot of things to talk about. But you know, actually, looking back on that, um, I would say I'm not as aggressive as I was, and I do think that the the man that ran the gate, he deserves perhaps a mention, an honorable mention, maybe not a medal, but uh, there still is sort of a People's Republic of China atmosphere in gated communities. I mean, you're, you know, you, you have to toe the line. Well, I think if you were in East Germany, you were in the Stasi, and if you live in California, you join a homeowners association. There you go. But you reminded me of what we need to do more of on this show, which is more original comedy. You and I have done a little bit of that, and I want to play a clip now from our good friend in Los Angeles, David Rosenblum. Ah, bring it on. The big thing right now, Doug, is we have a new product for the U.S. market, and we are looking for shows to sponsor. Hint, hint. Unfortunately, KDVS is commercial-free, David. Uh, oh, too bad. Oh, what, well. what is it? Vitamin-enriched cigarettes, Doug. You're kidding. No. Organically grown hybrid tobacco is blended to be high in B vitamins and vitamins D and E and even K. Smokers say they feel energized after just a half a pack. So it really delivers those needed nutrients, does it? 
Well, people are glad to get nutrition while enjoying a pleasant smoke. It's, it's a wonderful combination, uh-huh. Doug, and it's environmentally friendly. We need more of that stuff. Yeah. Um, whatever happened to him? Uh, Don's still around. He's just It's just hard to get, uh, get him on board. Sometimes he's in L.A. We're up here. So any local comics that are interested in getting on board as we do more original comedy and Radio Parallax here in 2012, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. You could, you could go down to the Capitol and find a lot of local <laughs> comics. Come yes. on. They do supply quite a bit of our material inadvertently. Now, as an abogado yourself, I think you'll appreciate the following item. Avocado? In <laughs> a, Italian? A lawyer in Spanish. Oh, well, I go. I actually like avocado better. Okay. Go ahead. We did go also to Los Angeles to interview Mr. Robert Buckley. He apparently just received the largest settlement in uh, tobacco uh, litigation history. Mr. Buckley, thank you for joining us on the program. Were you surprised, sir, at winning so large a settlement? Well, the tobacco companies are appealing this ruling, I understand. Well, what do you plan to do with this uh, money? Well, thank you very much, Mr. Robert Buckley, for joining us on the program. Again, that was uh, Mr. Robert Buckley from Los Angeles, winner of the largest settlement in the history of tobacco litigation. By the way, we've taken our shots at lawyers in this program uh, on many occasions, as you well know. But, you know, going after the tobacco companies, hey, we're together on this one, eh? Totally. On a more serious note, Steve, let's do some of our more, uh, I guess, illustrious people we've been privileged to interview in our in our 500 programs here and just kind of play it and say a few words on let's it as do we it. go that on. That sounds great. All right. Let's start with the immortal Walter Cronkite. Excellent. We asked Mr. Cronkite about anyone he, uh, he regretted maybe not having the chance to interview. Interestingly enough, one of the people I would like to have interviewed would have been Hitler. I would like very much to have tried to probe what really made that man tick. We had Mein Kampf, of course, that gave us some guidance, but uh, it left questions unanswered. I would like to really have had a chance to sit down with him, greet my teeth perhaps, but try to find out really how any individual could come to such a disastrous philosophy as that that he acquired. Kind of a surprising sentiment. Cronkite, a World War II correspondent for the, uh, for the United Press, would have liked to have interviewed Hitler. Yeah, that would have really been interesting, Walter. I'm sure that Hitler would have just given you a linear, well-thought-out description <laughs> of what he did and why he did it. Well, I have to admit, a lot of times, uh, you know, politicians in particular are, are, are pretty good at giving you an evasive answer when you ask a straight question. I, I have a hard time believing Cronkite could have gotten something meaningful out of Hitler, but it's curious that, he, that, he, that he's sorry he never got a chance. Well, anyway, Steve, I don't know whether you heard this. We interviewed Richard C. Hoddle, one of the first people that Ed Murrow hired back in the 1930s. He was actually the first person to report on the D-Day invasion, at least first report that got back to America. Uh, it so happens that Richard Hoddle told us about... Uh, being on the tarmac with Hitler. Well, I want to hear it. My second sort of outside assignment was to go down to Tempelhof Airport in, 
in this, the heart of Berlin in uh, March, whenever it was, March the, uh, the latter half of March, to uh, be there when Hitler returned to Berlin. And it was, you know, by comparison with everything that followed, everything was so monumental and, and sort of mass-produced after sure. that, he he got off his little plane, it was a three-engined uh, plane, and, and uh, just, just stood there with a small group. Troubles was there with a small impromptu sort of speech of welcome. And there I was, about an arm's length away from him. Wow. And, uh, and wondering, you know, he, I'd heard all this business about his magnetic blue eyes. Well, I looked into those blue eyes, nothing magnetic about him. You know, it's a great it's a great privilege to speak to a man who had an experience like that and can relate it to us. That's been one of the great pleasures of doing this show. That's why oral histories are so important, although it's not shocking that uh, Hitler did not have enigmatic blue eyes. It's just a wonderful piece of, you know, an observation that this man made at the time. It's rich. Did not find him charismatic at all. <laughs> exactly. And of course, Daniel Shore, we're sort of on, I guess, an Ed Murrow theme. Hotlet was one of the first people that uh, Murrow hired. Dan Shore was one of the last. And of course, he finished out his career at NPR being a, a commentator and everything he thought about commentating on. And we were privileged to have him on the show, too. Another giant. We asked him about a truly remarkable episode in his career. That, that, was, that was probably the most uh, exciting uh, moment that I spent in radio and television. It was, we were, co- we were covering the Senate Watergate hearings live, gavel to gavel, and sometimes the, set, the committee would go out to vote or something, and we were left to fill time. Uh, so I was outside the Senate caucus room when the hearings were going on, along with uh, Sam Donaldson for ABC and Douglas Kiker for NBC. On this day, John Dean testified before the committee that he had been in charge of drafting a list of enemies, and he submitted the list in evidence, but he didn't read it. And so the next thing was we all ran outside to our cameras and sent people to try to get copies of it. Each one wanted to be the first to be on the air with it. And so finally, one of my assistants came and handed me a copy while I was talking on the air. I said, here it is. Here is the first <laughs> list of Nixon's enemies. What does it say here? This is enemies of Nixon, a list, a numbered list of 20. And I haven't seen this, but let me read down for you. And I read down, and I, there was Paul Newman was there. Good company. And then, and then I said, and number 17, gulp, Daniel Shore. And then it says next to it, a real media enemy. Number 18 was Mary McGrory. So I was really, as I looked at it, I was, I was in very happy shape, except I didn't know what that list meant. Now, it, it did happen that for the first and only time in my life, um, my income tax was audited. What a coincidence. What a coincidence. I really miss Dan Shore on, uh, on Weekend Edition with Scott Simon on NPR. You know, I always wondered about Paul Newman. <laughs> and so did Tricky Dick. But uh, Dan Shore mentioned the list uh, being produced for the, the uh, congressional investigation by John Dean. We managed to have Mr. Dean on the show, I think, three times at this point, three and counting. And he had some other things to say as well. Although John Dean was a lifelong Republican, he was highly critical of George W. Bush. Well, this is the deal he cracked with the Congress uh, in getting them to go to war and giving him a, a resolution that was somewhat unprecedented, that, that he wouldn't actually have to have the, uh, the formal uh, resolution before going 
into Iraq. But within 48 hours, he had to make this determination. And the laws, federal laws, are filled with uh, presidential determination. It's a rather formal process by which a president, uh, because of his unique information access, presents Congress with his findings. Uh, and that is not what Bush did. Bush was, he agreed to do this, to make these determinations, uh, these, that there was no diplomatic avenue to resolve the weapons of mass destruction, and, not or, and that this was consistent with the war on terrorism, implicitly meaning that there was a tie with either al-Qaeda or uh, some other terrorist organization, or bin Laden or, or whoever. And the document he actually sent to the Congress within 48 hours of going into Iraq is the most remarkable document I have ever seen any president or any White House ever submit to the Congress. It is, it is uh, a fraudulent document. I'd explain at some length in the book, not using legalese, but just in plain old English, you know, how distorted and I think self-evident this is. Uh, it's a document that has been totally overlooked by the mainstream media, and it is exactly the kind of situation that uh, uh, the founders had in mind when you go to Congress, you give them straight information when you're the president. Indeed, this came up during the uh, resolution of uh, uh, the side of our uh, our Constitution, and the founders said, hey, you cannot make false statements to Congress. And this is a false statement to Congress, making it a high crime and misdemeanor. Pretty strong words from a guy whose best pal was Barry Goldwater Jr., and we also spoke to, by the way, about his book on Goldwater. Didn't, didn't like, didn't care much for W. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it, it's interesting. I'm sure uh, he has uh, reasons for his opinion, but but it's it's sort of incredible for him with all of the history he has in government to suggest that this one document is the worst example of defrauding Congress. Uh, I mean, let's just go back and count the ways, you know, going back to, you know, the Spanish-American War. We don't have a clip on it, unfortunately, but it was uh, curious when I was over at Capitol Public Radio and Insight when we had Senator George McGovern on. He said he thought Nixon was, was a lot better president than W and yeah. would welcome him back, which kind of blew my hair yeah. back. Well, I mean, all, all these folks have a point of view. Uh, they're all part of the problem, though, to the extent that there isn't much that's truly transparent. The biggest problem underlying all of these police actions is, is that they never comply with the War Powers Act. We don't declare war. So whatever it is that we've gotten involved in, whether it's you know, in the Kennedy years and the Johnson years or whether it's in the Iraq you know, misadventures, none of them are really— uh, you know, advanced uh, through a declaration of war, which which is a, a whole different world than, than the way we run well, around in police know, actions. B- by the way, investigative journalist and former Radio Parallax guest Chris Hedges is trying to sue, I think, Obama under the, some provision of the War Powers Act. You have to come back in the next few months and uh, talk about that. Yeah, well, he's going to lose. I don't know anything about the case. Yeah, I know, I know nothing kn- about and, the case. And he also knows he's going to lose. Yeah. He's doing it to make a point. Yeah, that's fine. You know, we're sometimes accused of being uh, being very liberal on this program. I think we are rather progressive. We're certainly in an, an era where Barry Goldwater might be thrown out of the Republican Party for being too liberal. I'd say that we're, and by that standard, liberal. Of course, my true liberal friends listen to the show, and they're not buying it. Uh, Doug, in fact, uh, this is a very liberal, uh, quote, progressive, close quote, program. And I think you would uh, serve your listenership better um, if, you'd, if you'd broaden your topics and take a more neutral uh, neutral view. There's also a lot of great stories out there that you just you know, don't I, I, I do. Never, I never bought the idea that neutral view meant you'd say, well, you know, for another view on Hitler, <laughs> and somehow you were doing your job. Yeah, no, but yeah, I mean, never all, of your, all of your Kennedy and Daniel Shore and John Dean and Nixon and George W. and Goldwater, you okay. never look, for the most part, never look at the other side. For example, 
let's just use her, Nancy Pelosi's husband, having $11 million of AIG stock when she's in Congress voting for the bailout. She is in a conflict of interest, at least by legal standards. I don't know what they do in Wait, Congress. you mean the Democrats are corrupt too? Yeah, but you never— I'm shocked. Yeah, you— Shocked! May, no, you aren't—but you don't, you don't talk about it. You don't investigate sure we do. it. You don't shine a light on it like you do on— on your, your Mr. Alexander hasn't listened to the show perhaps as much as he should liberal. have in recent years. I listen to every every <laughs> Thursday night, baby. I am glued Ball. to the radio. Anyway, I'm sure you're really going to like the following clip from Marxist <laughs> Berkeleyite Michael Perenni, who, on this case, what he's got to say, we're pretty much with him. Look at the treatment, for instance, of the Iraq War that's pending. Well, what they've done is made that war very acceptable through a process of normalization. Right, we get shows on TV, if the U.S. does invade Iraq, right. here's where the troops will do, and this is what they'll do, and these are the missiles we'll use, and they're very accurate, mm -hmm. and this and that says this, there won't be too much collateral damage, and this is going to happen, and, and this new new jet will be in place. Mm -hmm. Making, after you watch, you watch 15 <laughs> minutes of that, the war doesn't sound too bad, you know, uh -huh. I mean, you're getting all <laughs> fixed and ready for it, you know, you're, you're getting all attuned to mm -hmm. it, you know, and they haven't said, now mind you, uh, Doug, they didn't come out and say, we support this war, we want this war. And they don't do that. They just peel this all out and create that reality implicitly, that background reality that the, uh, the dangerous man in the White House wants. So this guy's a Marxist, you said? He self-advertises himself as a Marxist, yes. Oh, that's good. That's, that's convenient. Uh, we, by the way, we are, we are not Marxist on Radio Parallax. I think that's much, that much is clear over the years. And I, I agree with that, and I would not uh, stand by this uh, wonderful show if, if I thought you were. However, don't you think you should have somebody to balance him out? Sure. You're, you have a standing invitation. No, I'm not. What? I'm a Democrat. <laughs> Eternally exiled. Let's see if we can't take a little detour into entertainment. Uh, and, of course, we, we did have a chance to interview among some other luminaries the immortal Carol Channing some years back, and we jumped at that chance. Great, great woman. Great entertainer. Let's talk a little bit about, about, about acting. Uh, what, what do you think makes for a, a good acting performance? Gee, what penetrating questions you ask. Um, <laughs> this, this, you know, you're like the students at University of California. They ask the most provocative questions. <laughs> what is the secret? Okay, how do you keep the show fresh is, is, is the equivalent of that. Put somebody in the audience, in your imagination, that you know understands you, loves you, and can't wait to hear what this plot is all about. They can't wait to hear what you think this character is that you're playing. Mm -hmm. And you put, if, if they love you and you love them back again, and I tried it. And Noel Coward's the one that told me that. He came backstage at a little review called Lendonier. That was my first really good job in Los Angeles at uh -huh. a little theater. And Noel came back and got down on one knee and he looked up at me and he looked like the Grand Canyon in his face. It was, it was just uh, uh, years of training. And, and he went five different directions and he said, Look, put me in your audience, love. And you'll see, when you feel you're losing the audience, they're not responding. Put me in your audience and you'll see it'll work. That's a good way to find out who your friends are. Noel Coward coaching Carol Channing as to wow. what to do on stage. Wow. I mean, Carol Channing would have been a great trial lawyer picking a jury. Why do you say that? Because you want to pick someone, you want to put them right in that jury box, somebody <laughs> that's just going to love you and agree with you and vote for you and just, you know, make it a great show. 
That's how we need your damn legal perspective on this show more often. Yeah, well, I mean, it's true. It's, a, it's an art. Well, speaking of art and artistry, one, one guest we had on the show, which I'm still just, it, I'll be eternally grateful for, was the immortal Norman Corwin. I attended an event in, in L.A. for Norman Corwin's 95th uh, birthday, and it was well turned out. Very much loved individual. We had a chance to ask him about some of the milestone work he did in the 40s, and even earlier, in fact, in 1938, he was working for CBS when Orson Welles did his famous War of the Worlds broadcast, which he told us about. I had followed the War of the Worlds, that Orson Welles broadcast, the Martian invasion. Uh, That immediately followed uh, Orson's War of the Worlds. I didn't know what was going on in the, in the studio beneath, directly beneath my own. And I found out later that Orson had emptied the living rooms of America and uh, that nobody could have heard my program. And I had a friend in master control whom I called the next day and said, how late did the calls keep coming in? He said, well, the last call came in at around 2 in the morning. And I said, that late? And what was the nature of that call? He said, well, it was from a, a man that was probably a truck driver in New Jersey. And uh, he, I said, what was the conversation like? And he said, well, he, he said, uh, is this the station that broadcasted that program about Mars? And the uh, master control man said, yes, it is, said wearily at 2 in the morning. He said, well, I want to tell you something, mister. My wife heard that program, and she got so excited, she opened the door and she fell down a whole flight of stairs. Jeez, it was a wonderful program. You gotta love it. He's there the night Wells did the War of the Worlds broadcast. You know, you gotta love it, but it also, um, you know, it really shows how how our culture and our, our manners of speech and communication have changed so much. Today... If that was played and you emptied all the living rooms in America and a woman fell down a flight of stairs, there would be a huge class action suit <laughs> against Wells. Progress does not always go forward. <laughs> Correct. By the way, we did do a special on that War of the Worlds broadcast on our Halloween show uh, several years back, and I think that is available on our archives at radioparallax.com. After going to that event uh, for Norman Corwin, I was able to later interview Norman Lear, the famous television producer, uh, Phil Proctor of the Firesign Theater. And it did inspire my uh, associate in L.A., Bruce Bronstein, to get us Ray Bradbury, another memorable interview. Boy, I'd like to hear that one. Well, you're in luck. Fahrenheit 451. And the Martian Chronicles and so much else. I knew that. You've received an awful lot of honors over the years, Mr. Bradbury. There's an asteroid that's named after you out orbiting somewhere near the orbit of Mars. You've been honored by the President of the United States. Uh, what has been the most gratifying for you over the years in terms of recognition? No, just going into a library and seeing my books on the shelf near Edgar Rice Burroughs and H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. That is the moment for me. It's wonderful, just wonderful. And Steve, after we had that chat at Bradbury's house, we went over to visit Corwin. The two men have been friends since the 1940s. And, uh, of course, he was very pleased and said, just, just tell Norman I love him. That's awesome. He also mentioned how when he was a young writer, he wrote to Corwin uh, expressing his, his admiration for him. Corwin took him out to dinner, and he said he was so grateful for that. And we, we went to go visit uh, Corwin subsequently that afternoon. We brought that up, and he just said, boy, that was like 60 years ago. Ray's still bringing that up. I'm, I'm still getting mileage out of that dinner. 
Anyway, Steve, I know that you're, you're, you're pressed for time and can't stay with us throughout the remainder of the show, but we should close uh, with a UCD professor, in this case, Dr. Arthur Shapiro. I should mention, too, that your, your story about being an undergraduate at UC Davis and shooting arrows out in the quad, we need to revisit in a future program. Well, sure. We don't need to redo that, but if you want to talk <laughs> about it, we can. Dr. Shapiro is, of course, a world-renowned expert on moths and butterflies. When we asked him the question of, how do you tell the difference? The technical answer is that if it belongs to the superfamilies Papillionoidea or Hesperioidea, it's a butterfly, and if it doesn't, but it's a Lepidopteran, it's a moth by definition. So being a moth is not defined by any specific properties. It means being a member of the order Lepidoptera that isn't a butterfly. Put that in your smoking pipe. Holy mackerel. <laughs> Is it is it fair to say if it's at night, it's generally a moth? If it's daytime, it's generally a butterfly? Except when it isn't. Let me just, just you know, this is a long time ago, but this brings back a lot of memories. This is why I barely got a C in entomology <laughs> at Davis. They breathe through their scales. They got a thorax going there. They got a proboscis. No, they don't. Is it this? Is it that? It, it's, a, it's generally a moth unless it isn't. This is, this is, this is a problem. It sounds like you were lectured to by Jackie Mason. Yeah, well, you know, I got a moth, okay, I put it in there, bada bing, bada boom, came out a butterfly, I don't know. Driving over here, uh, Doug, I, I thought back on uh, our original discussions and how you, you launched this, this uh, studio, and, um, you know, you really have offered this community, uh, you know, just such a wonderful balance of science and nature and politics and... Uh, you know, just things that people don't even think about, near-Earth objects, you know, who came so close to Earth, one of us quipped, gee, that one was just off the fingertips. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quality. It's a quality show. I think you need to get, you know, you need to balance out, you know, some of the politics. It's fine. But this is a quality show, and I'm, I'm tonight announcing a foundation um, where we will be, and a super PAC, where we want this show to go national because uh, this show offers quality listening to older folks and young folks and everybody in between. I'm going to fund the initial endowment uh, foundation at $5. I'm and I'd ask all it. of your listeners to call in because we need to get you an agent. We need to make this national. Well, I do like the idea, Steve, but we are not currently taking further donations until we clear this with our legal department. <laughs> no, this is in I am the legal department, okay? <laughs> and I, what I'm telling you is this, I'm setting up a nonprofit super pack. Hey, if Mitt Romney can have a super pack, you can have a super pack. So you're going to get a super pack. We're going to get an agent, and you know we're going to display some of these rockheads that have these national talk shows of somebody that's high quality. Well, Steve, I got to say that's a hell of a good idea. Well, you know, sometimes lawyers come up with good ideas. <laughs> All right, we got to get out of this particular segment. But Steve Alexander, thanks for coming back, and thanks for the original idea for, that led to Radio Parallax. Well, you're welcome, Doug. And uh, you know, maybe I can get some return on that someday after you go national. But we got to get the endowment going. You're going national, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Well, if Tom Sullivan can do it. Oh God, he's one of the guys we have to displace. Boy, no argument from me. Thanks, Steve. This is, of course, Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned. We got lots more.